Welcome back to Art Holes, everyone. My name is Michael Anthony, and this is the podcast about art and art history with someone who has no background in either topic. I hope everyone is enjoying the Pollock series so far. Uh, and if you are and want to give back, scroll down to whatever podcast app you're using and throw me five stars. Uh, say you're doing it in Jip's memory. It really doesn't matter, but it does help get the word out on the show to new listeners. I renumbered the episode so you can see exactly where we are in the series, and this is going to be the longest episode of the series by far, and for this one, I am swinging for the fences, because why the hell not? The story has just been so insane, and if you spent this amount of time with it, you deserve my best shot at a crescendo of weirdness and off-the-wall shenanigans and to go out right. And there are going to be points in this episode that get incredibly depressing, and you're going to look down at the timer and be like, fuck, 45 more minutes of this? Hang tight. So let's buckle up and let's get right into it. When we last left Jackson, he finally snapped at the constant direction of Hans Namuth during the final day of shooting for their short film. And when the pretext and foundation of your sobrieties, the tranquilizer Candyman, Dr. Heller, and Dianetics Therapy with Roger fucking Wilcox? If you fall off the wagon, you're gonna fall hard if both of those things disappear, which of course, they both did. Dr. Heller, the Candyman, he died earlier that year in a single car crash on Friday, April 20th. He was alone driving westward on the Montauk Highway about a mile east of Bridgehampton near the town line, quote, early in the morning, the day prior on Thursday, and he hit a tree. After the accident, an ambulance happened to drive by, and Dr. Heller appeared to be fine, and he turned down that ambulance, which just happened to be carrying Mrs. Clifford Windsor of Montauk, who was a patient of Dr. Heller's. Apparently, there was no doctor-patient confidentiality back then, and the press just knew about everything. And Dr. Heller eventually made his own way to the hospital. A few days later, he died of a cerebral edema caused by the crash, and he was 44 years old. Anytime someone is driving alone early in the morning and hits a tree, I'm looking to blame either alcohol, or maybe he was chewing back a few of those barbiturates he was doling out. And there's no good reason for that amount of detail on Heller's death. Uh, but I knew Heller died young, but all the books were like, yeah, and then he died, and that was it. So I researched for hours until I found an old PDF copy of the Thursday, April 20th, 1950 issue of the East Hampton Star, the newspaper that, quote, shines for all. So if I had to track this nonsense paper down, I'm going to use more than one line. It was the 28th issue, and it cost 10 cents, or you could get a subscription for six months for $2, or $3.50 for a year. And we're going to need some levity in this episode, so let's check out a few more of the goings-on in East Hampton at the time in a new segment of the show I like to call... And now, Michael sits next to a crackling fire, sips a hot toddy, and reads you useless news from a really long time ago. Alrighty, let's see here. What's this? A wedding announcement. Mary Louise Barnes got married to Miller G. Mayo on April 12th at the St. Philomena Church. Mary Louise was a 1946 graduate of Adelphi College, and she received departmental honors in psychology in 1946. Good for you. She wore her grandmother's white silk gown trimmed with beads and carried a white leather prayer book. Her maid of honor was her friend Denise Culver, who wore yellow embroidered organdy. Don't worry, I looked it up. Organdy is a fine translucent cotton or silk which honestly sounds kind of sexy. I for sure would have tried to chat up Denise at that wedding. And Miller G. was a graduate of Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, which is right near Schenectady, graduating with a degree in aeronautical engineering, and his best man was his brother, Harwood Mayo. The couple is making their home in Glastonbury, Connecticut, which I wholeheartedly disagree with, but congratulations anyway. 
In crime news, on April 14th, Ludlow Harris Rayner was arrested for violating then-Section 1433's Subsection 2 of the Penal Code for malicious mischief for lighting multiple woodland fires on Lazy Point Road. He pleaded guilty and was given a $50 fine and a six-month suspended sentence, so no jail time for old Ludlow. But William E. Goodale and Harry Reichert, they were arrested for fighting at a local tavern, and they both pleaded guilty to disorderly conduct, and the Justice of the Peace Strong sentenced both of them to 60 days in jail. So I feel like the judicial message coming out of East Hampton is, is a little muddled. And finally, the annual spring musical at East Hampton High was the Gilbert and Sullivan operetta HMS Pinafore, which received rave reviews and was lauded for its set decoration and casting, especially for its supporting roles. Opening night at the Guildhall was generously attended, and a special shout-out to East Hampton High's Joan Whitaker, who played Little Buttercup and whose performance was described as, quote, outstanding. So congratulations to East Hampton High for all of their hard work. So, really the crucial point here is, with Dr. Heller dead from his mysterious car crash, Jackson lost his ongoing prescription to multiple controlled substances. And on top of that, Roger fucking Wilcox left to spend a year in Mexico so Jackson doesn't get his Dianetics therapy anymore. So as scary as both of those things were, as a foundation for Jackson's sobriety, scarier still is when they're taken away from him. Jackson and Lee traveled to New York City the day before Jackson's November 28, 1950 show. This was the unveiling of what are now considered to be his four greatest paintings that we discussed last episode, uh, Lavender Mist, Autumn Rhythm, Number 32, and One. There were a lot of important people in the art community there, but this was the moment where Jackson's celebrity outpaced people's interest in his actual art. People were really there just to see Jackson. All they wanted to do was shake his hand and meet the life painter. Very few people were able to look at the paintings because it was so busy and people were saying things like, quote, too big or too strong. Lee and Jackson got to the show so late that Jackson didn't have time to get drunk and he was described as, quote, absolutely ashen and hideously sober. Marvin slash Jay was the only member of the family to come and see the show. Uh, Jackson kept looking back at the door to see if Stella or Sandy would make it a last-minute appearance, but neither of them did. With Jackson and Lee staying in the city for the duration of the show, the next several nights when people were looking at his work at the Parsons Gallery, Jackson was stumbling through the village, just hammered and screaming at people's windows. He would then collapse in a phone booth at bars and call old friends and almost like plead with them and say, quote, I am a great artist. This is Jackson Pollock and I am a great artist. Lee desperately tried to get Jackson to go to other artists' shows, go to Christmas parties, play the political game, but the more Jackson saw his contemporary success, the more he felt like a complete failure. Because for what turned out to be Jackson's most productive summer, the show at the Parsons Gallery sold next to nothing. People came to see a famous artist, not buy anything, plus the paintings were enormous. What do you do with a seven-foot painting? Only Lavender Mist sold, and it sold for $1,500, which was an amount described as, quote, humiliating. Most of the press and critical review of the show were worse than negative. They basically ignored the show altogether. For critics to ignore an art show is basically the ultimate backlash. It means that you didn't even inspire negative emotions in people with your art. It's like saying your art isn't even worth considering. And this is why Lee desperately tried to get Jackson to play the political game, to get allies. When you're a drunken, mean, and arrogant asshole to everyone around you, especially the people who knew you when you were a severe alcoholic at 20 years old with no talent, when you start to fall, nobody's going to want to help you, and some people actually enjoy watching the process. Now critics who didn't like Jackson in general felt more freedom to say so, and fellow art students were openly dismissive of him. 
The Art Students League held a 75th anniversary exhibition at the Met, and Jackson's name was only included with the lesser-known artists from the league. And the new editor of Art News, Thomas Hess, he decided he was going to do the same thing with Willem Nakuning that Clement Greenberg did with Jackson and be his champion. And he also started to rewrite history a little bit. When Hess's book, Abstract Painting, Background, and the American Phase came out, he put Jackson's name last out of alphabetical order. As for Jackson's role in the art world moving forward, he is on a steep decline. Throughout that winter and into January of 1951, Jackson and Lee were staying in New York during the gallery season, and he was, I guess the best way to put it is he's like a sad old man alcoholic now. At the opening of the Abstract Painting and Sculpture in America show at the Museum of Modern Art, Jackson drank so much champagne that he fell out of his chair multiple times. And when he was asked to say a few words to the crowd, he panicked and ran out of the building with Lee chasing him through the crowd, exhibit, and onto the streets. Jackson ran right to his car, which was parked nearby. So let's talk about Jackson's car. When the money was rolling in, Jackson bought himself a 1947 dark blue Cadillac convertible. The last thing Jackson Pollock needed was a fast car, yet here we are. Lee convinced Jackson not to drive off only when a friend of theirs, Linda Lindeberg, offered to drive them all the way back home to Springs. Linda doesn't play a part in this story, really, but she deserves some credit here. If you've ever driven from New York City to East Hampton, you know how long of a drive that is. Linda probably saw how desperate Lee was in Jackson's state, and she took one for the team, even though her name is stupid in a Peter Peterson kind of way. And this whole scenario was really Lee's current and I'd say primary concern with Jackson. It was either be in the city where he had easy access to liquor or be in Springs where he had easy access to a car. Jackson was way too drunk to say no to the ride, but he was just sober enough to scream at Linda to stop at almost every bar in the ride across Long Island. And for context, Long Island is 118 miles or 190 kilometers long. By March of that year, Lee was so desperate to get Jackson to stop drinking that she did something absolutely insane for her. She actually consulted a legitimate therapist who specialized in alcoholism. We finally have an adult voice in the room. Don't get too comfortable. Dr. Ruth Fox was a highly respected psychiatrist who specialized in the treatment of alcoholism. Her approach was two or three psychotherapy sessions a week of, quote, deep analysis and group support through Alcoholics Anonymous. And throughout the story, I just sort of figured AA wasn't around yet, but no, it had been around since 1935 when it was started by two guys named Bill Wilson and Bob Smith. So there was alcoholism treatment in America at this point, but just not for Jackson. Dr. Fox arranged for an initial interview and invited Lee to be part of the, quote, treating team and to sit in and listen. For two hours, Dr. Fox questioned Jackson, alternating between sympathetic, firm, respectful, and admonishing... This was the first therapist to legitimately dig into Jackson, and not just as a patient, but as a patient who was also a severe alcoholic. That's right, we can now finally use the word alcoholic in this story. Dr. Fox identified that Jackson, to a team, met the alcoholic profile she developed, and said that Jackson was, quote, egocentric, masochistic, withdrawn, impulsive, dependent, with low tolerance for tension, low self-esteem, longings for omnipotence, and problems in the sexual area which I think pretty much covers everything. Dr. Fox was also adamant that the first step to her treatment was complete abstinence. She thought that therapists who let their patients drink as, as wasting the therapist's time and the patient's money. She thought that if patients drink during therapy, when they start to recognize the source of their drinking, be it psychological, domestic, childhood trauma, then the patient then feels justified. 
it provides excuses for drinking, and then shit just spirals out of control even more. To help Jackson out, she prescribed Anabuse, which was a new brand of drug that, when taken with alcohol, caused nausea and vomiting, and Jackson was two thumbs up, ready to go. He was ready to be sober. But Lee wasn't so sure. Uh, I don't really think she ever believed that he would sober up, so she made Jackson draw up a will. Which, if Jackson were somewhat well-balanced, he'd realize that this was his wife just projecting a complete lack of faith that he'd live into 1952. He left everything to Lee, but if Lee died before him, everything would go to Sandy and Stella. Uh, the rest of the brothers were worked in as third options, but they weren't allowed to keep any of his paintings. As far as Jackson's public persona went, there were still a lot of people who had vested financial interests in Jackson still succeeding. You can't just back somebody like this and at the first sign of trouble bail out or nobody will trust your judgment moving forward. It's like sports team front offices that give that one extra contract to a player that fucks the team for the next five years because they don't have the cap room to make any moves. So people are just going to keep propping up this disaster of a person for their own self-interests. Hans Namuth's pictures from last episode came out in Portfolio and Art News with extensive articles attached. And Art News called his latest show one of the top three shows of the year, uh, to view, I'm sure, but it didn't sell for shit. Lavender Mist and Autumn Rhythm were used as backdrops in Vogue for models wearing, quote, the soft new look. And Peggy Guggenheim was in overdrive, loaning and touring Jackson's paintings all over Europe. Peggy was smart. She was either going to keep the train going or she was going to drum up business to sell off all of her excess Pollocks. I mean, really, from her perspective, it cost nothing, so might as well give it a shot. She already owns the paintings. After he created the Big Four paintings last summer, Jackson stopped working altogether. Uh, there was the publicity tour stuff that caused some delay, but the bigger problem was that Jackson had a really bad creative block. My two cents is that deep down, Jackson knew that with the latest great four paintings, he, he peaked, he'd run out of stuff to say. When Jackson began trying to paint again in the winter of 1950-1951, the drip technique that made him famous was nowhere to be seen. He was now using all black paint, and representational images were beginning to show through in some of his paintings. The paintings were much simpler, even more so than the black on canvas from number 32. Uh, they were described as dark, ominous, and quote, nightmarish visions. If you want to take a guess at what you think the genesis of this complete artistic shift was, and you guessed a random drunk Irishman named Tony Smith, then you would be completely right. Tony Smith was part of the Tennessee Williams crew, so he and Jackson were acquaintances since the 40s. He was also one of the only people who wanted to spend time with Jackson after he started drinking again because everyone else thought Jackson was intolerable to be around. Tony was younger than Jackson, and he had a massive crush on Jackson, so he flattered him all the time. He knew exactly what to say to Jackson, and they would just sit and talk for hours on end or just sit in silence. And soon, Tony and Jackson became inseparable, drinking excessively and being a team of, quote, Tormented souls, travelers on the road to hell. Tony was apparently known for trying to dominate artists creatively. Uh, he was never an artist, but always wanted to be one, so he would try to get other artists to take on his visions. And since Jackson was so lost and had no sense of self, he allowed it pretty quickly. People said it was obvious that Tony was pressuring Jackson to try something new, and the reversion to representational images were all Tony's doings. So Jackson's paintings returned to those haunting, creepy images from, I think it was episode three, uh, women with large breasts like Stella's, weird animal figures, uh, there was a child on its mother's lap, and a stone-faced woman with a skeletal family around her. 
I'll post a painting from this time uh, just as an example. It's number 25, 1951 that Jackson called Echo. He also started using glass basting syringes instead of sticks and hardened brushes. And I honestly think this was because he was so, so incredibly drunk all the time that the shakes were worse than ever before, so he needed the control. And if you thought Dr. Fox's reasoned therapeutic approach, Alcoholics Anonymous, and Anabuse were working, not even close. Throughout the summer of 1951, uh, there were fits and starts of Jackson painting, but mostly it was two and three week long binges. Imagine going on a three-week binge and not only not dying, but have that be the best way that your body now functions. These binges would start with a six-pack or two of beer from Dan Miller's general store that he would crush in his Cadillac outside of Jungle Pete's, and only after a bunch of beers was he evened out enough to even go into the bar. And you gotta remember, Jackson has been on barbiturates for a few years. He hadn't done the Jackson thing at Jungle Pete's since, like, 1949. Now he's getting so drunk so consistently that even your run-of-the-mill boniker alcoholics at Jungle Pete's are like, yo, what are you doing? Nina Federico, the co-owner with her husband, used to give Jackson stuffed striped bass and coffee to try to sober him up. And yeah, we're going to deep cut in this episode, given it's towards the end of the story. You're getting Nina Federico's stuffed striped bass facts in this one. And why not? Fuck it, this has been exhausting and I'm slowly losing my mind as this series goes on, and I'm sure that was obvious right around Denise Culver's yellow embroidered organdy. But let's get back to Dr. Fox's therapy for a second. Jackson clearly wasn't sober, wasn't taking an abuse, and stopped attending AA meetings, which he said were full of, quote, blabber mouths and lonely hearts. And he said, quote, they gotta drink. Me, I only drink if I feel like it. Things were spiraling so quickly that Dr. Fox got Lee to commit Jackson to the Regent Hospital in Manhattan to detox, which he pretended to do twice over the summer, but for the bottles of scotch he hid in the bathroom. So Toilet Hooch is making a comeback in this story, because when you're stuck in a never-ending cycle, of course it's gonna. By the middle of the summer of 1951, uh, basically everyone had abandoned Jackson. There were no more invitations to dinner or cocktail parties, and Lee wouldn't risk having everyone over the house. Without anyone around him, Jackson found what I guess is human interaction by driving around in his Cadillac and harassing the Bonnikers. One night he drove to the Potter's house and roared the car engine and Penny Potter said her husband Jeffrey was convinced Jackson, quote, was going to rape me or pee on the floor, which are two totally different things. Even Roger Wilcox's wife Lucia chased Jackson out of the house with a broom after Jackson peed in their bed one night. And as bad as Jackson was doing, Lee was starting to find her own way. Her art was becoming bold with interesting gestural abstractions, and she was using canvases almost as big as Jackson's. And her art was getting so good that Betty Parsons agreed to schedule a show for Lee in October, which was news that caused Jackson to go on a two-week bender that resulted in another commitment to a facility. Jackson's jealousy of Lee's professional success resulted in him trying to hurt her in the way that he knew was best. Other women. There was a rumor going around of an affair between Jackson and a young woman who was uh, kind of like an art student in a groupie of the New York art scene. It, it didn't happen, of course, but Jackson played it up just to torture Lee. If a friend of theirs was having a cookout and Lee was there, he'd bring a woman that he picked up from a bar. would just bring her to the party because he's an unmitigated piece of shit. One night they were on the way back to Springs from the city and Jackson pulled the car into Harold and May Rosenberg's driveway. Uh, they were some of the friends that met Igor during the summer of the gay beach and mud fight. He walked up to their house, Harold wasn't home, and started pounding on the door and screaming at May Rosenberg, who said Jackson said, quote, terrible, terrible things, threatening what he was gonna do to me using the foulest language, saying I'd never had it so good. 
and Lee sat utterly terrified in the car. And then the Rosenberg's seven-year-old daughter, Patia, came around the corner holding a huge kitchen knife, crying hysterically and screaming, Don't hurt my mother! Holy shit, this is getting disastrous. With Dr. Fox's therapy clearly not working, Lee was desperate for Jackson to get help, probably because she knew everyone around him was in mortal danger. One of their friends said Lee had a, quote, pension for charlatans, and Jackson was really the same way, which at that point is pretty obvious. And because it's way easier to use magical thinking to hope quack remedies and mystical nonsense will help you rather than actually confront your demons, Lee and Jackson sought out the services of a biochemist named Dr. Grant Mark to, quote, drive his thirst for drink away by adjusting his body chemistry. Dr. Mark had a, quote, Svengali air, and he promised a magical elixir that would guarantee a longer and healthier life. Dr. Mark himself was described as anorexically thin, with a blanched and gaunt face, albino blonde hair, and long fingernails that curved grotesquely over the tips of his red swollen fingers. He looked, quote, like something out of a horror movie. He also wasn't an actual doctor and didn't use doctor in his correspondence. He was like some weird PhD that employed a bunch of doctors on his staff. Dr. Mark referred to his title as business manager of a company called, quote, Psychological Chemistry, Inc., which I'm sure was owned by a Panamanian shell company. He dragged his elderly mother to sales meetings, who he described as his, quote, best living advertisement, and who he constantly fed biochemical drops and hot water with lemon juice. Dr. Mark told Jackson that of course he wasn't an alcoholic. He had a chemical derangement and an imbalance of metals in his body. All Jackson needed was to cut out dairy, eat lots of fruit and vegetables and eggs, and the only meat he was permitted were birds, but only wild birds. And no birds that, quote, can't take off at more than 50 miles per hour, which I, I, I don't even know what the fuck that means, and only if they've been shot within the past two hours. Stick with me, this gets even dumber. Jackson was also to take daily baths in a kosher rock salt solution to leach out harmful mineral deposits. But that's all foreplay. The most important part of Dr. Mark's treatment was a special soy-based emulsion of health juice that he happened to be the only person who knew the ingredients of and sold. He told Jackson that as long as he drank the emulsion, liquor wouldn't harm him and the alcohol in his system would, quote, find its own level. Which sounds suspiciously like a that-shit'll-figure-itself-out treatment, and I promise you it's not the most ridiculous medical advice we'll hear this episode. Jackson's takeaway from all of this was the more emulsion he drank, the more liquor he could drink. Court for a court, that was Jackson's math. Both Jackson and Lee's next shows at the Parsons Gallery didn't go well. Uh, Sandy and Arlo went to Lee's show, which probably pissed Jackson off, and Jackson's show was incredibly dark and terrifying, and someone said it had a, quote, foreboding of death. Jackson's mood the winter of 1951 got even darker and he was even more withdrawn. Is frightful, but the fire is so he didn't spend Christmas with any of his family and spent most of the holiday week at Jungle Pete's railing at the quote, Santa shit. 10 a.m. Santa's coming to town. Santa! Oh my God! On December 28th, he spent most of the day drinking and he drove home at around 8 p.m. He took off in his Cadillac, hammered, slammed on the gas, and then Jackson started to nod off, and then the car veered into the opposite lane. He came to and overcorrected and pulled the car off the road, and he plowed through mailboxes and across Old Stone Highway and skid across the wet grass until the car glanced off a telephone pole and finally smashed into a tree. Jackson crushed the front of his car and pushed the engine through the dashboard, and his chest slammed against the steering wheel. 
How Jackson survived that crash is beyond me, but he slowly got out of the car and staggered to the street to get help. But as long as you love me so, let us go. After the new year in 1952, Jackson's contract with Betty Parsons came up. He and some other artists like Mark Rothko, Alfonso Osorio, they tried to get Betty to drop everyone but them so she can concentrate more on their sales. Coincidentally, or not, the people they asked Betty to drop just happened to be all the female artists. Jackson couldn't figure out why Betty couldn't translate his publicity into sales, and they had a pretty rough professional divorce at this point. What Jackson didn't account for was that Betty Parsons was the only dealer who would touch Jackson. So Jackson needed a new gallery owner and dealer, and he thought Pierre Matisse would be perfect, who showed his father Henri, George Brock, and Picasso, but Pierre politely declined. His excuse was that he didn't show American artists, but he did, and he probably just didn't want anything to do with Jackson. Jackson then finally decided to team up with someone who clearly had his best interest at heart and knew the art world front to back, salt bath and soy emulsion impresario, Dr. Mark. Dr. Mark had a plan that would revolutionize art sales and convince Jackson to let him be his agent. This guy is the most Miami. The only thing that's missing is that he's not a DJ and doesn't also sell detox tea or shares of a real estate portfolio for properties that totally exist. Totally exist, bro. Don't worry about it. Of course, it turned out to be a scam and paintings were, quote, misplaced and Jackson never saw any money. On top of that, Dr. Mark's soy emulsions were costing Jackson and Lee about $200 a month and they were desperate now to find a dealer because they were going broke very quickly. Jackson and Lee finally convinced an art dealer named Sidney Janis to take on Jackson. Uh, both Jackson and Janis didn't like each other, but they both begrudgingly decided money could be made with their arrangement. Honestly, though, it didn't matter. Jackson was on such a steep decline that he wasn't going to be sober enough to fulfill the entire contract. Jackson's binges now began with about 20 or 30 bottles of beer from Dan Miller's store, and after the Cadillac crash, he was now driving around his old Model A. He completely stopped seeing Dr. Fox, which was a decision probably pushed by Lee. Uh, Dr. Fox was blunt with Lee, and she said that Lee was part of the problem and she was enabling Jackson and that Lee herself needed therapy. She said that for Lee, the next step was that Lee would fear physical abuse, fear that she was losing her own sanity, and that both of them would spiral into codependency even more. And honestly, I don't think Lee could handle that prognosis, especially the part where Dr. Fox said that Jackson would become more violent and withdrawn and that the final stage of their relationship would be a, quote, catastrophic quarrel. So once Lee heard that, she supported Jackson no longer seeing Dr. Fox and she, quote, watched his diet and fed him vitamin pills more assiduously than ever. And just like Dr. Fox predicted, Jackson's rages got worse and worse. They came unexpectedly and were directed at anyone for the slightest of reasons. I think deep down Lee absorbed some of what Dr. Fox said, because she takes a turn here a little bit. Uh, she's more in damage control mode and begins to focus more on Jackson's art and career more so than his personal well-being. Which I have no problem with, because this isn't her child and he's a grown-ass man. People could also see that she was letting her real feelings of rage shine through. Someone said, quote, I think she hated him. Both Lee and Jackson were now separately coming to the conclusion that everyone around them had already had, that they were horrible for one another and being together made things worse. It was now, quote, open warfare. Jackson would yell at Lee in public now and not just in front of Harry Jackson. And he would say things like, quote, go fuck yourself, woman. I'll do what I goddamn please. He would also call her a slut and a whore and, quote, an ugly goddamn woman. And the neighbors would hear these unbelievable screaming matches. And then the beatings began. 
It is completely implausible that Jackson had never hit Lee before, uh, but the most she admitted to was that Jackson's, quote, feelings towards me became somewhat ambiguous and that he would take it out on the furniture. But in the fall of 1952, Lee couldn't hide the abuse anymore. She was now showing up places with black eyes and bruises all over her face and arms. Harry Jackson, the surrogate brother and one of the worst people in the story, thought Lee had, quote, asked for it several times and saw Jackson, quote, knock the old woman into the next room. He kicked the piss out of her two or three different times when I was there. And at a dinner party when a storm knocked out the lights, Jackson stalked Lee throughout the house with a bottle of bourbon and a knife and screamed, quote, I'm gonna kill you. So, yeah, now Jackson is just openly beating the shit out of Lee and threatening to murder her. This is now the story of an abusive alcoholic who happens to paint. Jackson is an abuser, and, and Lee cannot escape. So she did the only thing she could think of, which was to call Stella and make her stay at the house. To Stella, quote, You did this to him, now you come take care of him. With Stella now at the house, Jackson began to paint again. Because, of course, a 40-year-old man is only productive when his mother's around. And we're in professional last chance mode for Jackson right now. He needed to pull something together for an upcoming Janice show. Otherwise, he was done. If you can't fill up a show for the only person who would take you on, it's over. For the show, Jackson included some of his black and white representational paintings, the newer stuff, and he even included a large throwback painting in his old drip technique. The drip painting was sloppily put together, and to make it stand out, Jackson used a 2x4 to put giant, long, blue rectangles on the painting. Uh, the painting was called Number 11, 1952, which he later called Blue Poles. This is a famous Jackson Pollock painting, but not because it's great. Uh, I think it's more iconic because the blue poles make it stand out, and it was one of the last vestiges of a style that made Jackson who he was. The painting was basically the sad, drunken, old man version of a thing that used to be awesome before you realized it was full of hate. Blue Poles was Mel Gibson. Give me back my son! The Janice show was complete garbage, and even Clement Greenberg, who wouldn't publicly review the show, told Jackson it was, quote, wobbly, and that Jackson's tenure run was over. So even Clement is starting to bail out now. Only one of the paintings from the show sold, uh, number 12, which I'll post for this episode's uh, Instagram post, and artists were now saying that Jackson was plagiarizing other styles. Number 12 was a Mark Rothko ripoff, Blue Poles borrowed from another artist named Barrett Newman, who worked with a lot of vertical rectangular lines, things like that. With Stella gone again, the rest of the winter was just Jackson consuming alcohol as fast as he can get it into his system. He's now drunkenly passing out with cigarettes in his mouth and setting mattresses on fire, but you hit women, so whatever, fuck you. Jackson finally decided that it was Stella he really needed, and he called her in Connecticut. And just a geography reminder, Sandy, Arloy, Stella, they've all been living in Connecticut basically this entire time. I know it's a pain in the ass keeping track of everybody's whereabouts, and they all lived in a town called Deep River. So Jackson called and begged her to come to Springs, and after a month went by and she failed to show up, he realized it probably wasn't happening. He tried again in the spring, calling her often and desperately. Again, this is a grown man now harassing his mommy so that she'll come see him. But every time she had an excuse. He had to have known that deep down she was straight up avoiding him. Now that Jackson is tumbling toward rock bottom, he needs an extra kick squy in the nuts on the way down. He really needs something that will decimate him professionally. And we have to talk about this in somewhat detail, because it's an upheaval in the New York art scene and really is a massive part of 20th century American art history. 
I've mentioned Harold Rosenberg a few times so far. He was a friend of Jackson and Lee's, and Jackson threatened to violently rape his wife before their young daughter threatened to stab him with a large kitchen knife. You know, friend stuff. Harold's about to shake shit up. Uh, he was a well-respected intellectual, uh, he was a lawyer by trade, but he was also a writer, sort of a literary critic, philosopher type. He was a thinker and a giant nerd. He was also somewhat involved in the art scene, which is where he met Lee and Jackson, and he'd been trying to transition into being an art critic for a while. Harold also really, really hated Clement Greenberg. He thought Greenberg was a hack, didn't have any real credentials or knowledge, and that Greenberg was lording over the New York avant-garde art scene for a reason that he couldn't comprehend. I think the real reason was that Greenberg was great at selling his bullshit, and Harold was just too intellectual for his own good, and nobody knew what the fuck he was talking about, which becomes relevant very shortly. Harold was one of those pro-revolutionary Marxist guys, like David Alfaro Siqueiros, who was Jackson's mentor and the attempted assassin of Leon Trotsky. He thought that painting was inexorably tied to political statements, and that true painters were the new American revolutionary heroes, the uncorrupted workers. He was working on an article for Art News. Uh, Harold wanted to write an art theory and criticism piece that was so mind-boggling and insightful that he would knock Clement Greenberg off his pedestal and take his place. His developing premise was that the true American working hero, the artist, uh, the man of action, en enmeshed with political revolution, a man, of course, it's still gotta be a man, that's a risk taker. But Harold's problem was that the artist who would best fit his theory was Jackson Pollock, and Harold hated Jackson, he hated his art, he hated that he was a celebrity. Harold said that Jackson was, quote, incapable of sustained mental effort. So now Harold had a three-pronged mission. Uh, number one, to define a new art movement without endorsing or using Jackson's name. Uh, number two, to destroy Jackson's celebrity while still supporting his style of painting, the action painting of someone who attacks a canvas. And number three, to take out Clement Greenberg without de facto taking out Jackson, whose process he supported but not his results. If that sounds overly complicated and convoluted, that's because it is, and so was the resulting article. The American Action Painters was published in the December 1952 issue of Art News, and the article was a very carefully crafted piece of bullshit that absolutely savaged Jackson and Clement Greenberg. But the Jackson arguments never named him specifically, and Harold was careful not to go too far. For those in the art community who actually read the article in depth, very few actually understood it. But when Lee got a hold of the article, ooh, she knew exactly what was up, and she went absolutely ballistic. She immediately called Clement Greenberg and was like, yo, you need to fight back, and he wanted no part in answering this highly thought-out article. He was also kind of distracted by his new protege, who he was sleeping with, uh, Helen Frankenthaler, who turns out to be an incredibly talented artist. Willem de Kooning, who I mentioned last episode as the emerging challenger to Jackson's abstraction crown, he made the mistake of telling Lee that he liked the article. So now Lee found another target and bombarded de Kooning with phone calls and accused him of, quote, betraying her, betraying Jackson, and betraying art. Lee also had some personal baggage with de Kooning that went back a bit. Uh, when they were all younger, she was madly in love with him. This was pre-Jackson. And at a New Year's Eve party in the 30s, she went for it, and she sat on his lap, and she flirted with him, and she tried to kiss him. And when she did that, he opened his legs and let her fall on the floor, embarrassing her in front of everybody at the party. She then got so drunk that she screamed at de Kooning and called him, quote, phony and a shit, until an artist named Franz Boltman had to pull her away and forced her into a shower with all of her clothes on, like this was some terrible action movie from the 80s. So Lee started a multiple front war with Harold Rosenberg and Willem de Kooning, which was a terrible idea. 
while Harold and de Kooning were acquaintances before this, Lee's aggressive approach brought them together, even though de Kooning wasn't a natural fit for Harold's theories. Lee had drawn battle lines. You were either with Harold and de Kooning, or you were with Jackson. And while everyone thought that Harold's article was great because it really validated a lot of what was happening in the New York art movement and it shit on Greenberg, who most people hated, it was Lee taking on de Kooning that sunk everything because people loved Willem de Kooning. He really was the anti-Jackson. He was always available to mentor younger artists. He was incredibly articulate, friendly, genuinely modest, incredibly respectful, and other artists thought he was the true next in line to Cezanne, Matisse, Picasso, not Jackson. So now everybody who was chomping at the bit to turn on Jackson, they now had de Kooning and Harold Rosenberg to point to. Both Jackson and de Kooning tried their best to stay out of the fray because they were sort of old friends. Uh, not too close, but they would drink together and they hung out in the same circles. But the battle lines were set. When the de Koonings moved to East Hampton, everybody started to go to their dinner parties and they became the new focal point of the East Hampton art scene along with the Rosenbergs. And Jackson and Lee were just sitting home alone miserable in this poisonous situation. Lee was also at this point turning away most guests who tried to visit the house and studio to see Jackson. Uh, my guess is because the only people who really wanted to see him would also enable his drinking. One time, a bunch of Jackson's drinking buddies came over to the house when Lee wasn't there, and they drank and played poker until 3 a.m., and they decided to get on bikes and ride to the beach to go swimming. Jackson was so drunk that he immediately fell off the bike, and he kept trying to pedal, and he shredded the skin in his legs and elbows, and he was in bandages for a month. Even Jackson's relationships with Tony Smith and Harry Jackson fell apart, which is a good thing. And by the end of 1953, Jackson was basically alone. He even ran out of Dr. Mark's Miracle Soy Emulsion Juice when Dr. Mark closed up shop, presumably under some sort of federal investigation. And with absolutely nobody else around in their lives now, Jackson being physically abusive towards Lee, they both agree that only one person can fix everything. Have you seen Stella by starlight Standing alone with the moon in her hair There was only one way for Jackson to be sober enough to paint for his next Janice show and keep shit somewhat afloat, and Lee decided Stella should live with them in Springs. Which is a true sign of desperation by Lee, because she still didn't like Stella, and I'm sure it's hard to admit that your husband needs his mommy in order to not kill himself. Stella was 100% on board with the move. She hated Deep River, hated Connecticut, and she hated Arloy. The two of them really didn't get along very well. Uh, Stella thought Arloy was stealing the money that the other brothers were sending to support her, and Arloy thought that Stella was pissing it away. There were other issues between the two as well, but once you throw money and family together, things can get pretty nasty pretty quickly. The rest of the Pollock brothers were not too stoked about this plan. They were still pissed at Jackson for never contributing to Stella's care and thought he was, quote, a cantankerous child who, if he can't get his way, throws himself on the floor and kicks his heels. They also thought Stella was willfully blind to Jackson's issues and praised him undeservedly and absolutely did not appreciate the sacrifices that Sandy and Arloy made for her over the years. But Stella made up her mind. She wanted her little boy, her Jack, who in her mind was probably still wearing those little baby petticoats. So everyone agreed that a two-month trial period would be appropriate. In a letter from Charles to Marvin slash Jay, quote, I am fully aware that intangible events seemingly beyond his control may make a prolonged stay for mother unpleasant and inadvisable. It's a pretty formal, intense way for siblings to talk to one another, too. It's pretty weird. My sister sent me a text yesterday. It was a, a picture of her dog taking a shit in the ocean, and all it said was, 
Bax took a shit in the ocean. I don't know, maybe everybody just communicates differently. Charles dropped Stella off on September 1st, and Jackson immediately began to paint again. And I'll post a few paintings from around this time. Uh, Sleeping Effort, Easter in the Totem, and Ocean Grayness. They're very much like the paintings from episodes, I think, four and five. These paintings had a lot of the techniques and themes that Jackson used right before he started to drip. Uh, This was Jackson retreading old ground. He did this a lot, and this was probably just an attempt to jumpstart something special again. In previous visits, Stella had only been in Springs for a week or so at a time, which was short enough that Jackson used to be able to dial back his drinking. But she was there long enough now, and Jackson was so far gone that Stella saw familiar signs, things she saw when Leroy used to take timeouts in the basement or barn at the hotel in Jansville. Stella didn't say anything to Jackson and Lee about her plans, and on September 27th, Charles picked Stella back up from the house and brought her back to Deep River. Hey, look, I get it, but you need to tell your kid before you just disappear when everybody knows he's in the middle of a freefall. Jackson and Lee frantically called Stella and convinced her to come back, which she did briefly, but then left again at the end of October. For the next several months, Jackson fell into this weird cycle of barely painting and begging for Stella to live with them and continuing his downfall. It was basically more of that, and I didn't want to bore you, it just keeps happening over and over again. Jackson managed to put on a show at the Janus Gallery, and Clement Greenberg didn't review this show either. Their professional relationship was falling apart, and Jackson didn't sell a single painting at the show. Meanwhile, de Kooning was skyrocketing both within the art community and commercially. And Lee was becoming more independent, both professionally and personally. She learned to drive, so she wasn't stuck at the house with Jackson or beholden to him if she needed to go anywhere. She got her own group of friends outside of the art community, and she was getting her own art shows. Jackson decided it was time to make himself happy in the most midlife crisis way possible. He traded two of his black and white paintings for a green 1950 Oldsmobile Model 88 convertible, which is also called the Rocket. He now has a fast car again. In November 1954, Stella had a heart attack. Then she had another, and then another. When Jackson found out, he went insane, so Lee freaked out and begged to let Stella live with them again. Stella has now become this weird marital aid, but also a buffer for self-destruction. It's even more of an unhealthy dynamic than it was before. This time it was Arloy who put her foot down and immediately put the kibosh on that bullshit. She may have had her issues with Stella, but she remembered what it was like to live with Jackson when they shared an apartment together and was like, yo, Stella is 80 and just had like a baker's dozen heart attacks. We are not letting her live with an alcoholic rage monster man-child with self-destructive tendencies, and so that was the end of that. Jackson ended up fracturing his ankle, screwing around drunkenly with, ironically enough, Willem de Kooning, and Lee had her suspicions that it was intentional, but it absolutely wasn't. So with Jackson stuck inside with a broken ankle, through the spring of 1955, Lee absolutely flourishes. Without having to worry about his behavior, Lee becomes fun and gregarious at parties, and she's churning out paintings. And by like May of 1955, Jackson saw Lee's blossoming as proof that she was planning to abandon him just like Stella did, so he puts the abuse level to 10. Their baseline existence now is screaming at one another, and Jackson's hitting her and they're threatening to leave one another. And then in September of 1955, after Clement Greenberg saw one of those fights where Jackson called her, quote, Jewish cunt and said that he never loved her. Greenberg told Lee that she needed to see a therapist immediately, and he would later say, quote, the marriage was killing both of them. So Greenberg knew that Lee needed help leaving Jackson. Surprisingly, she actually took his advice and finally went to see a therapist. 
And Jackson, not wanting to be outdone by Lee, began seeing a therapist in Greenwich Village that he was referred to named Dr. Ralph Klein. This is like the fifth time Jackson tried formal therapy, and it just happened to be in his old stomping ground, full of bars, especially the Cedar Tavern. The Cedar Tavern was on University Place near 8th Street. Uh, 8th was where Jackson and Sandy's old apartment and studio was back in the day. It was one of the main hangouts for the old crew of abstract painters, a bunch of whom still hung out there, and it was also full of the next wave of young art students and artists. This was Jackson's college bar. And he loved going to therapy every Tuesday, because afterwards he can go to the Cedar Tavern and relive all the old memories from the 30s with Sandy getting into fights, drinking until he woke up in the gutters, the good old days. He was not only doing his Jackson thing there, but he realized that it was almost his calling card at this point, and he amped it up to a thousand so he could put on a show and he became a cartoon of himself. He'd walk up to women and say, quote, You fucking whores, you think you're painters, do you? And he'd smash glasses, dump food on people, and he asked a black guy once, How do you like your skin color? So let's affirmatively add racism to his resume. And the crew at the Cedar Tavern, they ate it up. The younger artists loved being in the presence of a celebrity, and the older artists, well, they were assholes just like the work crews from the summer with Sandy back west, and they'd give Jackson a bunch of drinks just to see what he would do. The Cedar Tavern's gonna turn into a central location for the rest of the story, and spoiler alert, it's a sad scene. Lee, on the other hand, was doing great. Uh, her collage tables had transitioned to collage-style paintings, and she had a show in October 1955, which Jackson tried to hijack, but it received great reviews. Jackson's next show at the Janus Gallery was a complete fucking disaster, and really the final nail in the coffin. Uh, the show was 16 paintings, but 14 of which had already been shown before. The show was basically a retrospective in everything but name only, and when someone puts on a retrospective of your work, they're even saying, you're basically done and come buy a painting now before they run out. He was savaged by critics, and one critic called him Jack the Dripper, and Jackson's career is now pretty much over. Lee and Jackson were individually beginning to consider a divorce at this point, but fucking finally, this is a terrible marriage, and it makes sense now because a lot of people around them are divorcing, so strength and solidarity. Willem de Kooning and his wife Elaine were divorcing, Charles and Elizabeth were divorcing. Lee was more serious about divorce than Jackson, mostly because Jackson knew he really couldn't survive without Lee. But Lee finally came to the conclusion that she had two choices, live without him or die with him, which is a fucked up choice to realize that you have. At this point too, Jackson's health, it had completely deteriorated over the years because of all the drinking. In an attempt to stave off his liquor consumption, he'd been drinking so much beer that he gained 50 pounds, and he also contracted hepatitis from who knows where, and he had severe cirrhosis of the liver that was slowly killing him. But Lee was more concerned about him losing his shit mentally. He bought a hunting bow and started shooting up the inside of the house with arrows, which Lee was convinced was a message that he was going to kill her with a bow and arrow. And when he was in New York City, he would just walk up the middle of the street between the lanes while the cars were whizzing by, and one time he even drunkenly tried to jump in front of a speeding car, which narrowly avoided him at the last second. With his life fully in the toilet, at the Cedar Tavern, Jackson was still a celebrity, and he was all in on that being his form of emotional fulfillment. He's just this has-been bloated drunk who would yell out, quote, Who's the greatest painter in the world? And then the crowd would yell back, you are! And then he would say, quote, it's me, they know it's me! And I know I'm starting to sound flippant, and I understand that alcoholism is a disease, but once you beat your wife and threaten to shoot her with a bow and arrow, you are a has-been bloated drunk. 
he'd peek through the window of the Cedar Tavern at night and see if the crowd was big enough for him to make his grand entrance, and if it wasn't, he'd drink somewhere else until it was full enough to bust in like an asshole and make a scene. He also started wearing jean jackets and cowboy boots and spoke with a drawl and started to walk like a cowboy for his, quote, Tuesday night shootouts at the Cedar Saloon. And on top of everything, he's just such a dildo. Besides the Cedar Tavern, he was basically alone. On the rare occasion he was invited anywhere, he was committed to destroying the situation, like the time he was invited to a guy named Paul Wiener's house where he peed in a potted plant. Jackson had one last huge art sale. Blue Poles sold for $6,000, which was a massive amount of money and a huge shock. Until you read the December 1955 issue of Fortune magazine. The December 1955 issue of Fortune created this massive, I guess you can call it like a paradigmatic shift in art collection. The magazine pointed out that fine art, given its pricing, rarity, and appreciation, could be treated like an investment. So old masters like Rembrandt or Caravaggio, they were first-rate investments, and Impressionists, Post-Impressionists, and Picassos were labeled blue-chip investments, and contemporary artists of the time were identified as speculative or growth investments. So the market for art exploded with buyers coming from everywhere and buying art even if they didn't care about it, and prices shot up. And the art world was flush with cash. Clement Greenberg became a millionaire, so did Willem de Kooning, but Jackson wasn't really part of that, except for Blue Poles. This was mostly because Jackson's star had faded well before this. You know, why own a Pollock as an investment when the art world already decided that it wasn't worth anything? His entire life is in shambles, and physically, he's basically dying at this point. He's been slowly destroying his body with decades of alcohol abuse. But if he can just figure out things psychologically and emotionally, maybe he'll get the tools to turn this whole thing around. Which is why we need to talk more about his new therapist, Dr. Ralph Klein, who, do I even need to say it, creates a complete debacle. This, this was another one of those things that when I read it, I was like, of course, of course, because why wouldn't we have this too? Jackson absolutely loved his new therapist. He was over the moon excited, and that means everyone should be terrified. He never missed a Tuesday appointment and said Dr. Klein had, quote, godlike powers. At one point, he really stopped being just a patient of Dr. Klein and became more of an acolyte. And if you thought we were done with cults in this story, shame on you. Klein was part of a group practice at the Barnes Landing Group, which was a small collective of therapists who had, let's call it non-traditional beliefs and methods. He was part of a team led by Saul Newton and Jane Pierce, who we will talk about in a few minutes. The Barnes Landing Group had a fundamental disagreement with Sigmund Freud. Freud hypothesized that all people are inherently predatory and in need of control. Uh, think feral children. Feral children are what happens when human nature is in its natural state and when we don't instill societal values, group dynamics, things like that. But Klein and the Barnes Landing Group, they thought that human nature was inherently benevolent and creative and what people need is to be more free, not repressed. So if you're repressing yourself in any way, it's bad. Klein to Jackson, quote, If it feels good, do it. And a year from now, Saul Newman and Jane Pierce, with Klein in tow, would change the name of this group to the Sullivan Institute for Research and Psychoanalysis. The Sullivan Institute instructed their patients, and I'm air-quoting patients here, that they were not allowed to be in exclusive sexual relationships, which they said were, quote, the root of all misery. The therapist routinely had sex with their patients, and the patients were encouraged to cut ties with their former friends and family members. And they all lived together in a commune together on the Upper West Side. Any children born from this situation were sent off to boarding school or were with caretakers and the parents were prevented from visiting. 
At one point, the group needed more space, so they signed a lease in a theater that was being used by a gay theater review called, quote, The Hot Rock Hotel, which sounds awesome. And then they destroyed the set and beat a bunch of people up and then moved to Orlando because, of course, they were going to end up in Florida. What I think we can all agree is Jackson's last attempt at getting well was the beginnings of a sex cult. And if you want to see how that process can play out, do yourself a favor and watch Allison Mack interview Keith Ranieri, especially the part where she cries. And as you are is, of course, the sum of your whole past. So when someone's being authentic, you get the feeling that not only that there's a person there in the moment, but somehow you, you reach into their very essence and you, you meet a unique individual. I don't know why that makes me want to cry. It's beautiful. Well, I think, sorry. Now picture him naked with just the glasses on and do your best not to throw up in your own mouth. P.S. You're both sex trafficking monsters. Dr. Klein didn't believe in the idea that traumatic events can have a lasting impact, and he encouraged Jackson to let out his aggression at his mother, not process it. So Jackson started being outwardly aggressive about Stella, calling her, quote, that old womb with a built-in tomb, and he told Clement Greenberg that he hated his mother. But he also told people, quote, Maybe I paint because I want to sleep with my mother. And maybe I just dry heaved. Dr. Klein's you-do-you approach also gave Jackson what he saw as a green light for his drinking. It got so bad that people complained to Dr. Klein that Jackson had basically stopped eating, which some people close to him saw was a silent protest of Stella because she used to withhold food from the kids, the, the pie equals love thing from the first episode. But not eating is also a sign of late-stage alcoholism, so who knows? Of the Jackson not eating complaint, Dr. Klein said, quote, Look at the stuff that's in beer, the grains and so forth. Dr. Klein said that Jackson's biggest problem was that he hadn't lived enough. He needed to get back in touch with his creative slash sexual energy and, quote, act out his sexual impulses. Which, if you know anything about Jackson, is terrible advice. And he got right back to his impulses, which was to straight up sexually assault women. He would walk through parties and grab women's breasts and yell at them and chase women down in the street. And when he actually talked to a woman, instead of assaulting her, sometimes he would unzip mid-conversation, whip it out, and pee in potted plants. Women were petrified of Jackson, and he was a terror at the Cedar Tavern, and they wanted absolutely nothing to do with him. He started bragging again about his sexual conquest that never happened, telling everyone that he slept with Rita Benton, Mercedes Matter, and Vita Peterson. People got so sick of his sexual antics at the Cedar Tavern, antics is not the right word, crimes. People were so sick of his sexual crimes uh, that his buddy and fellow artist, Franz Klein, hired him an undercover prostitute. So when Jackson inevitably walked up to her and said, do you want to fuck? She grabbed her jacket and said, let's go. And Jackson immediately collapsed at the bar. At home with Lee at this point in early 1956, Lee, Lee was in hell. This was absolute hell. It was this constant routine of screaming at each other, and he would beat the shit out of her, and she'd call the cops, he'd threaten to divorce her, and she threatened to commit him to a mental institution. And one time he ripped the chandelier out of the ceiling, and he was constantly threatening to kill her. Clement Greenberg said it was like watching a wounded animal tearing at its own entrails, and that they were addicted to the cycle of abuse. Then one day in February 1956, something happened that would finally tip the scales in this violent situation. Jackson was sitting at the Cedar Tavern just to the gills with liquor, and an absolutely gorgeous young woman named Ruth Kligman sat down next to him. Somewhere out there beneath 
She was 26 years old with, quote, porcelain skin, big breasts, sensuous lips, lustrous brown hair, a warm, seductive voice, and a flattering, girlish way with men, unquote. Again, I made sure to unquote that one. That just sounded creepy as shit to say. Now, your first question should be, and everyone's first question was, what the fuck did she want with Jackson, who at this point was a disgusting monster in a whirlwind of domestic violence, booze, bloat, sadness, and a questionably operable penis? Ruth Kligman was born on January 25th, 1930 in Newark, New Jersey, along with her twin sister, Iris. That's right, we're doing one more Meet the Parents. Her mother's name was Mary Kligman, and she was 18 when the twins were born, and her father was a local con man who Ruth only knew by his professional name, Booty. I also think Booty was a pimp, but we'll get to that. When Ruth and Iris were born, Booty immediately abandoned his family. Of this, Ruth said, quote, My father didn't come to the house. He came in my mother, and that was it. Mary's family were wealthy Russian Jews, but they abandoned Mary and the kids over the Booty situation, and Mary miraculously raised the twins by herself. But it was an incredibly emotional and stressful process, so she was constantly crying, which made Iris cry and then in turn made Ruth cry. Quote, We all cried in a kind of horrible unison. I never knew what was wrong, but the whole outside world represented terror. When she was five, Ruth had her first nervous breakdown. She went into a catatonic state, refused to eat, didn't sleep, and hallucinated odd noises and, quote, monsters with green fluorescent eyes. Do I guess shake her out of it? Her aunt took her into the bathroom, made her pee in her own hands, and then splashed the urine in her face. The only enjoyment Mary and the girls found was by going to the movie theater nearby and seeing movies and escaping to the glamour of Hollywood and the old-timey stars. So Ruth began this fascination with male movie stars, which were sort of like surrogate dads she wished she had, and she loved the idea of fame and fantastical movie star love. Most of the girls' days were spent, quote, waiting for daddy. Occasionally, Booty would actually show up, and he would wear these really fancy clothes, and Ruth would feel a combination of ecstasy, terror, and disgust. Later in life, quote, Daddy was always the desirable one. Is anybody depressed and creeped out yet? Ruth grew up loving art and loving men in art, and her first celebrity crush was Beethoven. Of Beethoven, quote, His eyes were wild, his forehead high, full of energy. I decided I would be similarly artistic, and if not, the wife or mistress of a genius, unquote. When Ruth got out of high school, she started to model and continued her crush on older artistic men. Uh, one of her favorites was Guillaume Apollinaire, the violent, porny writer guy and best friend of Picasso. It, it all comes full circle. When she was 20, she had an affair with a rich married man who gave her everything. She called him, quote, my rich daddy. Of her rich daddy, quote, I cried, got drunk when I didn't get my way. He spoiled me. And then a few years later, Ruth had a second nervous breakdown. To start out fresh, she began painting classes and working at a gallery, and she was obsessed with glamour, beauty, and fashion, and she's a young girl in New York in the 50s. Good for her. Then one day, Booty showed up out of nowhere in a white Cadillac convertible. Okay, white convertible Cadillac, slick clothes, known con man, and his name is Booty. He was also a pimp. I'm sorry. Ruth got in the car, and they talked for a bit, and she casually mentioned that she was seeing a therapist, and Booty absolutely lost his shit and screamed, quote, What the hell is wrong with you? Can't you control yourself with men? What kind of creep are you? Are you a lesbian or something? And I'm not really sure how that tracks logically, but Ruth started crying, and she said, No, I need help. Booty, quote, What are you, some kind of whore or queer? Get out of this car, you tramp. And then he pushed her out of the car onto the ground and sped off. 
and that was the last time that Ruth Kligman saw her father, Booty. For a lot of people, Ruth Kligman represents the floozy, the scheming other woman, but whatever side you land on that issue, her life and history deserves context and she deserves humanizing. People are complicated. And now we can pick our story back up because she meets Jackson pretty soon after the Booty and White Cadillac incident. Ruth was ready to find her new older art genius, her Beethoven, so she asked a friend named Audrey Flack, who would eventually become a famous sculptor and painter, which artist around was the greatest. Audrey said Jackson Pollock because she's a terrible friend and gave Ruth the address to Cedar Tavern, which Audrey refused to go back to because it was so awful. Ruth would later say that her and Jackson felt for each other immediately, but it was more like when Lee had to push their relationship. He was constantly confused, drunk, and had no idea what was happening. After about two months of prodding, one night she finally convinced a severely drunk Jackson to come back to her apartment on 16th Street. The next day she told Jackson they had sex, they almost certainly did not, and now Jackson has himself a mistress. This was everything that Jackson's inner 14-year-old wanted, a gorgeous young woman to show off to his friends, and he started bringing Ruth around to other bars and they started showing up to the Cedar Tavern together. So Ruth found her Beethoven, and Jackson found a beautiful girl to validate himself and I guess prove his virility to others? I don't know, this is, this is a mess too. And Ruth totally played the part. She hung all over Jackson in public, and they said they loved each other in front of people, and they played these cutesy hand games, I'm guessing of the thumb war variety. They were the annoying couple. Someone said, and I forgot who it was, that he would just sit there and rub his nub fingertip, the one that Sandy cut off with the axe when they were kids, and he would just stroke her bare shoulder with the finger nubbing. And I know I'm being kind of a dick and I'm sorry, but it's just that, I don't know, something about that visual is upsetting to me for some reason. And it was apparently upsetting to other people, so I don't really feel as bad. For what it's worth, here's my take on Ruth and the narrative of her being the scheming mistress. When your deadbeat father is a white Cadillac driving con artist named Booty and your aunt throws urine in your face to stop your first nervous breakdown and then when you attempt to go to therapy, Booty calls you a lesbian whore and pushes you out of a car? We are not allowed to be surprised that you get lady boners from Beethoven's forehead and end up with a disgusting, bloated, spousal-abusing, multiple cult member alcoholic who delicately caresses you with his nubbin. So that scheming mistress thing, I have a problem with that blanket assignment. Their sex life, for all this nonsense, was really non-existent. If they had sex, if, it was maybe once or twice. Uh, when they were alone, he would just be incredibly drunk and would bawl his eyes out. And Ruth was totally fine with that. She said that the best sex you could have was metaphorical sex. Jackson did not try to hide this relationship with Lee, and he would make sure people who knew Lee saw him and Ruth out together in the city. I'm sure Lee was extra thrilled that Jackson was having an affair with a young, attractive woman with the same name as her younger and more attractive sister. The Dr. Klein Sex Cult Tuesday trips were now turning into days-long stays in the city at Ruth's place, and Dr. Klein was happy for Jackson that he could, quote, express himself without guilt. Lee was desperately trying to get things to work with Jackson. God only knows why. I'm guessing it's an entire life of unresolved trauma. And she suggested a vacation to Europe to visit Peggy, and Jackson said no, he wasn't going to go. In June of 1956, Ruth moved to Sag Harbor, Long Island, which is about 12 miles from Springs, to take a summer job, and presumably to be closer to Jackson and Springs. She packed a suitcase full of pink clothes, quote, in case someone invited me to a fancy dress ball or to go yachting. Ruth was tired of being the paramour, the mistress. She was tired of the rumors and the shitty looks from people. 
But every time she brought up Lee, Jackson would say that things were complicated and that he owed Lee, and it was obvious that Jackson wasn't going to leave her. Jackson, on the other hand, was convinced that he could have both Ruth and Lee in his life because he's a delusional late-stage alcoholic. He said that Ruth could live in the Springs Roadhouse and Lee could live in a shack on the property that was just past the studio. He legitimately thought this was possible. To Ruth, quote, I know she'll like you. Jackson's mind is now completely addled. He is just regressed to this childlike state of magical thinking. So Ruth decided she was going to take things in her own hands and she would push things forward. And one day Jackson announced to everyone that Ruth was pregnant. Yay, a baby! And he was so excited about being a dad until he realized that the dream of having both Ruth and Lee in his life was going to be a problem. But he asked Ruth to marry him anyway, which is just ridiculous. And of course, the baby thing was complete bullshit, but somebody faking a pregnancy at some point in the story was completely inevitable. I'm just shocked that it took this long. Lee was done at this point, as done as Lee was capable of being, and she told Jackson that she was taking that trip to Europe, and she told friends separately that they were headed for a trial separation. Jackson didn't argue, and he drove Lee into town to buy a ticket for a ship that was headed to Europe the next day. That next day, when Lee was waiting on the gangplank to board the ship that was headed to Europe, she completely panicked. She said that Jackson needed her, and she ran to the phone to call him, and the pretext of the phone call was that she lost her passport, but it was really just to talk to him, and they talked for a few minutes. She tried one last attempt to convince Jackson to come along on the trip, and he said he wouldn't, and then Lee and Jackson said their goodbyes. About a week later, a friend of Jackson saw him coming back from an appointment with his sex cult therapist, Dr. Klein. Jackson was trying to get down the stairs to the 419 train to East Hampton, and of Jackson, quote, it was an appalling sight. He was half-blotted, extremely depressed and physically ill. Body bloated, ankles swollen, face all red and blotchy. Keep in mind, Jackson was only 44 years old at this point, and he is a mess. With Lee gone, Ruth was free to move in, which she started doing as Lee was still boarding the ship to Europe. Now there was a new rush of domestic bliss for Jackson. They cooked dinner together, went to the movies, and he drove around the Hamptons, and Jackson introduced Ruth to everyone who hadn't met her yet. And that honeymoon period lasted about a week, and then he slowly slid back into his real personality. He was withdrawn, mean, he was an asshole to Ruth's new kitten Blanche, and he yelled at her for wearing makeup, and he'd cancel plans at the last minute because he wanted to stay home and drink. The real issue is that Jackson missed Lee, and he was already bored with Ruth, because he's a child and he wants what he can't have, and once he has it, he wants the thing that he lost to get it. And Ruth felt Jackson slipping away. He was yelling at her more and was being cruel to her in public, and the conversations of marriage stopped. He started saying things again like, quote, I owe the woman something. We will all live together. He was just continuing these delusions. So in response, Ruth started to lash out, and at a party at Dorothy Norman's house, after Jackson said something awful to her, she started gulping scotch and smashing china and having a complete meltdown. And Jackson walked up to her and slapped her as hard as he could across the face, and she fell, quote, like a broken doll. Now he is, across the board, a serial abuser of women, both sexual abuse and domestic violence. On August 2nd, Ruth packed her stuff and took a train back to New York, after only three weeks of living with Jackson. At this point in the story, I feel comfortable saying that the only thing Jackson ever truly created was his art, those drip paintings, and everything else he destroyed. Now Jackson was completely alone in Springs, and really alone for the first time in his life. There was no Sandy, no Stella, no Lee, not even Marvin slash Jay. Jackson had pushed away every single person in his life. 
He finally came to the realization that the affair with Ruth was an enormous mistake and he was determined to win Lee back. I don't really think that this attempt was grounded in actual guilt or regret. I just don't think he ever really considered the consequences of any of his actions, and now he's alone and doesn't like the feeling. So he tried calling Lee in Europe, but she'd switched hotels and was traveling, so he missed her. And when he couldn't get a hold of Lee, he spent a week calling everyone he knew, just desperate to talk to somebody. But he never called Ruth. One day he wandered onto Clement Greenberg's property by the garden and he saw Tony Smith's wife, Nancy. She asked him what was wrong and he could barely keep it together and he said, quote, Lee cuts my fingernails and she's away. So Nancy Smith cut his fingernails because he couldn't do it himself and then Jackson broke down into tears. And part of me wants to feel bad for him, the part that acknowledges his battles with addiction and mental illness, you know, to have some sort of empathy. But there are countless people who struggle with those things daily and they don't spend their adult lives sexually assaulting and abusing women. On August 9th, Ruth called Jackson and said that she wanted to visit him for the weekend and that she was bringing a friend. Ruth would later write about that time, quote, I would never leave his side. I would help him to be cured. That was my mission. He needed love and unconditional surrender. Even if he was wrong, he was right, unquote. On Saturday, August 11th, 1956, Jackson drove to the train station and picked up Ruth and her friend Edith Metzger. Edith was 25, pretty, with blue eyes and short black hair, and she worked as a manicurist and receptionist at a beauty salon. She came from a family of German Jews at the worst possible time to be a German Jew. When she was a young girl in Germany, her family had to stand by at a Nazi parade and rally while Adolf Hitler walked by. And right behind him was Hitler's right-hand man, Hermann Goring, and Goring saw Edith in the crowd, and he picked her up and he kissed her. And then Edith bit him in the face so hard that she said she could still remember the taste in her mouth. Soon after that, her immediate family fled to America, but many of her family and friends died in the Holocaust. Ruth convinced Edith to come on this trip to get over a recent breakup, and hey, you never know, maybe Jackson has a single art friend. When they got to the house, Jackson began rapidly consuming gin. Uh, they made lunch, but Jackson really only kept drinking gin, and then they drove around East Hampton for a bit. When they got home again, Jackson drank more gin before going upstairs and passing out in the bedroom, leaving Ruth and Edith alone. Later in the evening, Jackson got up and made steaks for dinner, but he mostly just kept drinking gin. They got invited to a, like a benefit concert and a party at a friend's place, and this was the fancy art party stuff that Ruth wanted and that she promised Edith on this weekend trip. Jackson complained, and after a back and forth, Ruth convinced Jackson that they should go to this concert. So Ruth put on a white linen dress with, quote, a lovely scoop neckline and back, and Edith wore a blueprint dress. Neither Ruth nor Edith could drive, and as Jackson got into the driver's seat of the green Oldsmobile convertible wearing a black velvet shirt and full of a lot of gin, Edith began having second thoughts. Ruth, do you think he's all right? I mean, are you sure he can drive? He's been drinking all day. Don't worry, Edith. He's a very good driver and I can handle him if he speeds. So Ruth and Edith got in the car. Uh, Ruth was in the front seat in the passenger side, and Edith was in the back seat, and they drove off. And Jackson's head kept bobbing as he was nodding off and struggling to stay awake. The car was weaving between lanes, and as he turned onto Montauk Highway, he got to a fork in the road, and he brought the car to a stop, and he didn't move. What's the matter, Jackson? Are you all right? I'm fine. I just want to stop for a moment. 
And as they sat there stopped on the side of the road, the girls were completely terrified and a police car pulled up behind them. Good evening, Mr. Pollock. Is there anything the matter? Hello there. No, nothing's wrong. We were just talking. How are you? I'm fine. How are you? Do you need any help? Ruth, he's no, drunk. Let's go home. We're visiting friends in East Hampton. Take it easy. He All knows right, what he's well, doing. You have a pleasant evening, and please be careful. As soon as the police officer pulled off, Jackson started driving again, but his condition was getting worse by the second. His eyes were glassy, he was moaning incoherently, and his head kept bobbing as he struggled to stay awake. Jackson, please, let's go home. This is ridiculous. We don't want to go to any party. Let's just turn around and go home. Ruth was petrified, and she was trying her best to be firm, but not instigate Jackson or scare Edith even more. Ruth finally convinced Jackson to stop the car in front of the cottage inn. The Cottage Inn was a predominantly black patronized roadhouse bar, which I'm sure was incredibly rare in 1950s East Hampton, and it was also a dance hall. And because it was Saturday night, it was crazy busy and Ruth and Edith could hear other people. They could hear music playing, and because it was so busy, there were cars everywhere. There were other potential rides home. And now that the car was stopped, Edith seized the opportunity and frantically jumped out. I'm gonna call for help. Or call a cab. She can't go in there. Get her back. Edith, get back in the car. Come on, don't go in there. But Ruthie's drunk. I don't want to drive with him. I'm afraid. No, he's not. He's fine. I promise you, we're going home. Come on, get in. Jackson refused to get out of the car, and Ruth finally convinced Edith to get back in. And as they started to drive off, Jackson was now much more alert, and he was absolutely furious. You knew how the story was going to end. It was just a matter of time. Lee knew it. His family knew it. Everybody knew it. I was going to do a retrospective to remind everyone of what Jackson's been through, the damage and pain he's caused, his own problems, but you know all of it. Jackson finally decided he was done. He sat there silently, but it was over. So while we may have always known this was how the story was going to end, the problem was... He wasn't alone. There were two completely innocent young women in the car with him. Jackson Pollock touched his foot to the gas of his green Oldsmobile convertible, pressed down harder, and just kept pressing. Stop the car! Let me out! Let me out! Please stop the car! <laughs> Do something! I'm scared! Jackson, slow down! Edith, stop making a fuss. He's fine. Take it easy, please. Stop the car! Jackson, stop! Don't do this!
sleep, you weary hobo. Let the towns drift slowly by. Listen to the steel rails humming. That's a hobo's lullaby. Safe from all this wind and snow. 